morning. Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 through 9, uh, page 63 of the Pew Bible, 63 and 64. <clears throat> you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be, be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be a partial shall you be partial to the, a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him, leaving him with it. You shall rescue, rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked, and you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. I ask you to keep that passage open on your laps. I'm going to be uh, referring to it. Well, we're uh, deep in the forest now, and uh, so it might be helpful for us to get reoriented just for a second. Today is part two of a mini-series on social justice, which itself is a part of a mini-series looking at various principles and problems that we encounter here in this portion of God's law called the Book of the Covenant. So uh, we're in a mini-series within a mini-series within our exposition of the Book of Exodus. And uh, sorry for all of the confusion. I can tell you that starting today, uh, I promise we're going to begin to start cleaning up some of this mess. Okay, we're going to start nesting some of these Russian dolls and uh, get back on track But hopefully you'll agree that it's been good for us to kind of slow down and take uh, a look at what the law has to say about social justice. This is our latest cultural obsession, in case you haven't noticed. It's hard to miss it, actually. You can't even watch the Super Bowl last Sunday without social justice being pushed on us and shoved down our throats from... Um, the, the two national anthems that started the game to the very carefully uh, crafted and choreographed commercials. Intersectionality, wokeness, diversity, equity, inclusion, BIPOC, cancel culture, hashtag me too, microaggressions, Social emotional learning, SEL, or BLM, and a whole host of other acronyms. Even if you don't know what any of these terms mean, you've no doubt heard this word cloud kind of surrounding you as you've made your way through the world over this last decade, I'd say. And the question is, what are we as Christians to make of all of this? How are we to think Christianly in the midst of such a culture. 
And the answer is not as easy as you might think. Okay, you're probably very tempted, like me, to dismiss uh, social justice warriors as a bunch of, you know, radical, liberal commies who are out to destroy our country and our way of life. But as it turns out, some of the things that they are saying and some of the things that they're fighting for reflect biblical principles of justice. And last week, we tried to identify some of, some of the positive aspects of this movement. Um, we looked at the latter half of Exodus chapter 22, and, and we saw a number of things that we could say, I suppose, are commendable about um, the modern movement. So, for example, we saw that, well, yes, it's true that people are individuals. They can be part of social groups. And some of these social groups that people are part of are actually undervalued and under-resourced and vulnerable. And thus, like I say, they're, they're susceptible to oppression and mistreatment by people that have more power or more standing. That's all quite true. And neither should we be shocked as Christians to see oppression and unjust treatment that is systemic, that is, that is enshrined in our policy or perhaps carried out just by unconscious custom. None of this should be shocking to us. We know how sinful we can be. And last week, the Lord drew our attention in particular to some of these social groups, like the sojourners, foreigners, aliens, um, he drew our attention back to the poor, to widows, and to the fatherless. These are groups of people that we must not treat with any kind of evil intent. We must not mistreat them. We must not take advantage of these folks, though it may be easy to do so. Why? Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, because of who Israel was— and also because of who God is. To mis mistreat so sojourners, and this is picked up in the very last verse of our passage today that Merrick just read, to mistreat sojourners is, is especially wicked and evil because that's who the people of Israel were up until about five minutes ago. They, they were themselves sojourners in Egypt, but, th but they were rescued, and they, they were shown great mercy. They were oppressed, they were mistreated like crazy, but God rescued them and showed compassion to them. So to mis if they were to then turn around and mistreat sojourners, that would be to totally forget their recent history, and it would display a shocking lack of empathy and thankfulness for what God had done for them. But, but we also need to remember who God is. And God demonstrates himself to be a compassionate God, a God who hears the cries of the oppressed. He, their, their whimpers ascend to him as he sits even on his throne in heaven, and it arouses his righteous wrath and indignation. He's a God of justice, He's a God of judgment, and he will give to those who oppress the poor 
he says, I will surely do this. He's going to give to those who would oppress the poor and the powerless exactly what they deserve. So we see that the social justice movement gets a few things right. However, it will also probably not surprise you to, to know that when the world gets a hold of anything, no matter how good or how true, it becomes in their hands all twisted and distorted and used for all manner of, of evil. I think sex is a prime example. Here's something that's designed by God and given by him as a good gift to be enjoyed by his creatures in the context, in the confines of a covenant relationship of marriage. But the world takes that beautiful and good gift and twists it and perverts it nearly beyond recognition. They do that with everything. I'm afraid justice fares no better in the hands of folks that are in the flesh. As the Apostle Paul explains in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, the mind of the flesh is hostile against God because it does not submit itself to God's law, nor can it. It doesn't even have the ability to. So I, this morning, what I want to do is take a closer look at the first nine verses of chapter 23 to see a number of things that the social justice movement gets wrong, disastrously wrong. And there's a lot that's wrong, but I'm going to confine myself to, to that which is contrary to the principles that we find in this particular passage. So I want to show you four big mistakes that the modern movement makes Four things that the social justice movement encourages contrary to the law of God. Okay, and the first of this is that it encourages slander spread. Slander spread. If you're taking notes, you can fill it in like that or some maybe better grammatical, <laughs> a better grammatical version of that. Slander spread. That's the game. Spread like peanut butter. Spread like sickness. This has been a weird winter, hasn't it? I, I don't think I can remember a winter that has had less snowfall by this point of time. And I don't think I can remember one, at least in a while, where there's been this much sickness. Uh, many of you, even, even the ones who don't typically uh, pick up stuff, have come down with some weird cold or flu or the latest iteration of COVID or some weird, you know, unnamed respiratory crud. And then in, in some cases with you, it's rebounded and hit you, you know, a couple of times already this season. And because this congregation is so loving and so kind and so generous we've been sharing and spreading all of this sickness around the whole church for the last three months so you you can appreciate then you can really understand how apt is the term viral to describe how a video or a meme or a quote can spread so far and so fast these days especially via social media and it's not just the cute and funny stuff that we share, 
but it's conspiracy theories, accusations, breaking but unconfirmed reports. We love to spread hot takes that come across as confident conclusions about people and things. And all of these things go viral and they leave a pile of devastation in their wake. Now, the uh, social justice movement purports to be about the um, full and equal participation of all groups in society, ensuring that, that power and resources are distributed with equity. That, that's at least on paper what the social justment, uh, justice movement wants to be about. And there are two ways that you can, you can try to reach that kind of equality or equity that, that they're after. And the first one is obvious, I hope, and that is to kind of pull up from the bottom those who they believe to be disenfranchised. So the poor, the immigrants, uh, the minorities, women, um, lots of examples. They, the social justice movement purports to reach equity and equality by pulling these disenfranchised groups up. But the other strategy, and this, this seems to be the strategy that they're giving the bulk of their energy to, it's to pull down from the top people who they believe to be the power brokers, you know, conservative politicians, Caucasians, men, especially it seems, religious institutions and their leaders. These are, these are pulled down in an effort to kind of reach equality. And as it turns out, it's relatively easy to dethrone someone with power. All it takes is one accusation to spread like wildfire. A person's good reputation that they've spent a lifetime trying to build can be lost overnight or within a few hours on X. And, and if all it takes for someone to be brought down is one accusation, then it should be obvious that what we're dealing with here is not justice. The requirements of true justice, and by true justice I mean biblical justice, include things like the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. It, it involves uh, rules of evidence, uh, the need for two or three witnesses. Every matter must be first established. That's, if you're going to have justice, that's what you need to have. But in the modern age, all that, that seems to be required to bring a person down is for that person to be credibly accused, which simply is an accusation that is believable. That's no standard of justice. I think it's so interesting how God, in his law, anticipates all of our present perversions of justice. I want you to see how interested the Lord is in truth. In, in any matter, there's a person who is in the right, as you read at the end of verse 8. Look there with me. And then there are, in verse 7, the righteous. These are people, in any case, who are in the right, 
And alternatively, there are, there's that which is false. Okay, that's a word that's repeated in this passage, both in verse 1 and 6. There's a side that is wrong, that's even malicious or evil. You'll come across those words as well. And the job of our courts, our job, actually, is to determine who is right and who is wrong. Another way that this is expressed in, um, in this section of God's law is that we need to determine which side the Lord is on. And so just glance for, uh, for a second at chapter 22, verse 9. God, God is obviously on the side of the person who is in the right. And that doesn't, that doesn't seem obvious in our eyes. And so we, we must be diligent to, f to discover in all of the proper ways who is right and who is wrong. We want to find out who is on, who, whose side God is on. And so we have multiple and very strong warnings in this passage about being on the other side, about being on the evil side. It says, we sh you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a, a witness, a malicious witness. The picture here, the context, obviously is like a formal legal setting where you're about to take the witness stand and... Um, You're going to testify that you've seen something or you know something, and that something is going to incriminate the person. How wicked would it be if you took the stand, and even though you've put your hand on a Bible, and, and you've sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, how wicked would it be for you to know that you've, with that same hand, have shook the hand of an evil man, in a sort of private deal to bring that other guy down. And maybe that deal involved a bribe. Maybe he was going to make you, it worth your while to say what, what you're going to say. And verse 8 contemplates that, doesn't it? Covers all of the bases that we might imagine in our evil to subvert and to pervert justice. Either way, I hope you can see, this is evil. This is so wrong. The Lord God says, you must not be a malicious witness. You shall not bear witness in a lawsuit in any way that perverts justice. Or turn, that word pervert just means kind of to twist or to turn it on its head. And hopefully you can see that these commandments are all kind of related and they're all restatements of the ninth commandment. It would be wrong for us, though, to think that the only way to apply this principle is if we're on the witness stand. And most of us, I, I would hazard a guess, most of us will never have that opportunity. But almost every one of us has some form of social media. Every single one of us interacts with other people. and We discuss current events and current affairs. affairs. That's what we talk about. Around the water cooler is the news. And I think that this principle applies in every single conversation that we have that begins with, did you hear? It applies to every juicy email that you forward and everything that you share on social media. The command that comes to us right out of the gate in verse 1 
is that we shall not spread a false report in whatever context we, we are, not just, you know, on the stand. We shall not, you shall not spread a false report. So let me ask you, when's the last time you shared something, either verbally or electronically, that was damaging to someone that you knew was not accurate? It was going to damage someone, even if that, if that person to you is just kind of some abstract, obscure person, a celebrity or a politician. It's still a person. So when was the last time you spread something that you knew to not be accurate but knew would be damaging? I'm asking if you spread it knowing that it was false. And maybe that one was too easy. Maybe... Maybe you're all prepared to say that you never do that. Okay, then let me try this one. When's the last time that you spread something that you, you, did, you spread it before you knew whether or not it was true? Un, it was unverified, but you spread it. How tragic is it for a Christian to be known at school or in the office or wherever their social circle is to be known as the gossip. The guy that's always forwarding those wacky conspiracy theories. On the contrary, I think we would stick out like a sore thumb in our culture if we refused to participate in, in slander spread in whatever form. The, the clear command that comes to us in verse 7 is stay far away from a false charge. Okay, treat, treat, it, treat something false or unfounded or unproven the same way that you would react if, if you're, you know, interacting with a friend from church and they're wheezing and they're hacking and they have a snotty nose, okay? How do you deal with those folks? You're like, Stay far away from a false report. Do not spread a false report. That's what the world does. They're into slander spread. Now, a second feature of our modern day and of the social justice movement is a mob mentality. A mob mentality. Some of you must know that I love music and art. I love stories. I love it when people express truth in very perceptive and beautiful and memorable ways, especially truth about the human experience. So there, there's a particular story that my mind returns to time and time again. And usually it returns to it when I'm, you know, reading the news. So I'm going to give you a little insight into what goes on in my brain here. The story that I always think of is Hans Christian Andersen's fable, The Emperor's New Clothes. And I'm sure you know that story. It's the story of a, a, a bad, vain king who uh, commissioned a couple of tailors who were bad dudes. They were con men, but he commissioned them to make some clothes for him, new set of clothes. And these guys said, this is a special set of clothes. It's going to be, they're going to be invisible to people that are fools or unfit for office. 
And of course, there were no clothes, but all of, all of this king's officials and, and all of his subjects pretended that these were the nicest clothes that they've ever seen. And they went along with the charade, you know. And the reason they went along with the charade is because none of them wanted to be considered fools or unfit for office. And so you get this picture of this, you know, short, fat, naked king parading through the town in his birthday suit to the wild applause and the standing ovations, the adulations of a throng of people until one little kid blurts out the obvious. The little kid's like, hey, what's going on? This guy's got no clothes on. Now, outside of the Bible, it's, it's hard for me to think of something that is more perceptive that's ever been written. And the dynamic, the reason I think about it so much is because this dynamic explains so much of what we see today, not just metaphorically, but even literally. So take pride parades or drag queen story hours. I, I constantly feel like a kid saying, hold on a second. Is, is anyone seeing what I'm seeing? You know, we see, we see Caitlyn Jenner receive an award for being the woman of the year, and the whole crowd rises to its feet in ovation, saying how stunning and brave she is. And I'm desperately looking around to, to, to see if any of these people remember, maybe they were part of that crowd that was standing in ovation when Bruce Jenner got an award in the 76 Olympics for winning men's decathlon. Anyone remember that? that? That's how I just constantly feel. And I actually believe that deep down, most people understand how ridiculous and depraved our culture is. And I think that if, if they could be completely honest, if there was no fear of any kind of repercussion, they would say that they really disagree with all of this nonsense. But people won't be completely honest because they, they're paralyzed by fear. Fear of being thought a fool or unfit for office or for polite society. Fear of being on the wrong side of history. Fear of standing against, uh, uh, you know, against a whole crowd of people to say, no, this is wrong. The, the social justice movement takes advantage of our fears and advances by way of a mob mentality. It's unfortunate, I think, but some of the best critiques of our current culture come from non-Christians. I think of a guy named James Lindsay from Tennessee who's a mathematician and an atheist. I think of... Uh, a guy from the UK called Douglas Murray, who's a homosexual, a homosexual, but he's written this incredible critique of the culture, and it's called The Madness of Crowds. And in that book, he makes a lot of great observations about how popular opinion is formed and amplified based largely on groupthink and crowd dynamics. Murray writes that, quote, the power of a crowd lies in its ability to silence dissenting voices. Furthermore, the madness of crowds, quote, thrives on conformity 
and a fear of being different. Now, we're going to see these crowd dynamics at play in the life of Israel at many points in her history, beginning even here in the wilderness, the people are going to kind of stir themselves up into a frenzy, into mass hysteria, and they're going to rebel against Moses and against Aaron, against God. We're going to get to see the madness of crowds, in, especially in chapter 32, when we come to that infamous golden calf incident. One, one of the things that will be striking about that is that the, the people get together. And together they demand a God. And then if we follow Israel's history even further, we would eventually come to the climax when their Savior stood before them and the mad crowd called out, crucify him. Release for us instead Barabbas. And Jesus was crucified in my place for my sin. For my sins of vanity and fear and gossip and slander in a a million other ways that I have broken God's law. And this is my hope and this is your hope. It's our only hope. That Christ has died for sinners, the one in the place of the many. And now look what the Lord requires. Look at verse 2. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. The sheer number of people that are on one side of a matter If you're looking at just the numbers of things, the sheer number of people that are are on one side of the thing is no indication at all about the truth of that position. In fact, it's usually the case, although you shouldn't bank on this either, but it's usually true that those who stand for truth stand alone. You know, young people, especially you're confronted with this more than we are. And when I say we, I mean us older people. I'm officially an old guy now. So I don't deal with this uh, in the same kind of a way that you young people are made to deal with it. And I I just want to, I want you to know that if you really want to be stunning and brave, you're you're not going to take the position that everyone else just kind of defaults to. You're, you're, you're brave, you're courageous in Christ when you stand for truth and when you stand alone, if necessary. No, it's, it's usually the case that when you stand for truth, you have to stand alone. And there's, there's a road, for example, that leads to destruction, and it's a wide road, and many travel on it. And what the Lord calls us to, brothers and sisters, is to take a stand against the perversion of justice in our day and choose not to side with the many. That the mob, the the mass of people that are just buying all of this, and maybe not even privately buying it, but just going along because they want to be seen as noble. Let's look at the, uh, the third major error of the social justice movement. 
And we'll call this, let's call this poor partiality. Poor partiality. It really should be no surprise, especially after seeing last week that the Lord has a real heart for the poor and the sojourner, for the widow and for the orphan. It, it's easy for us to see, I think, at this point, just how completely unjust it would be for anyone to show partiality against the poor. But in case you need the reminder, uh, the Lord reissues that command in verse 6. Look there with me. He says, you shall not pervert the justice that is due your poor in his lawsuit. And even though he doesn't have the resources or the power to advocate for himself in, in perhaps the best and most effective way, there, there must be, in any republic under God, there must be liberty and justice for all. No matter if you're rich or poor, or in a position of power and influence, or you're relatively powerless. Justice is meant to be blind to all of those uh, differences. And so we, ha we need to take special attention to not be partial against the poor and the powerless. And this needs to be repeated. We need to hear this reminder often because there is a constant temptation for us to be partial towards the, the rich and the powerful and the wealthy and the influential, people that can, can pay us back somehow for our loyalty. That temptation exists in every age. But it seems to me that in our day, there is an equal but opposite temptation to show partiality to the poor and to show partiality to the powerless which is to say to, to just judge in their favor no matter what the facts are. So the move here is you to classify certain groups of people as powerless. And so, you know, no offense, but this is what they do to you. Women are put in that category uh, along with uh, people that have certain degrees of melanin I'm not sure exactly what the formula is, but different colors and darknesses of skin are put into um, these groups of people, powerless people. Um, the gender non-conforming are considered powerless, as, as are anyone who, who deviates you know, sexually from the hetero norm. These are all kind of placed in these boxes and groups and then deemed to be powerless. So you classify those marginalized groups as poor and powerless and then you become their ally. This is how this social ju justice movement moves along. You, you become their ally and what that means apparently is that you automatically accept what they say and do. You're on their side no matter what. Th these people are to be seen and heard and believed no matter what. And if you think that I'm exaggerating, then I don't think you've been paying close enough attention. 
what else does believe all women mean? If not, I'm going to just believe her and all of them because they are powerless. That's just one example. Well, I take great comfort in knowing that there's nothing new under the sun and that the Lord knows man better than man knows himself. God has actually anticipated this potential error. And so he commands us in verse 3, look there with me, nor shall you be partial to the poor in his lawsuit. Don't be partial against the poor. You must not be. But on the other hand, don't be partial to the poor. Don't be partial at all. Justice requires no partiality. But you can, you can be partial to those who are poor and powerless. You can be so compassionate and so empathetic towards marginalized people and the powerless that we can be totally blinded to what true justice demands. And I'm saying, I'm suggesting to you that the social justice movement advances on poor partiality. And modern people are, are predisposed to be partial against the powerful and partial to the powerless. But the Lord commands that we be both compassionate and impartial. That we be kind and that we be just. Let's look in the fourth place at the social justice movement and its enemy ethics. Its enemy ethics. The vision for our republic is that it would be, under God, indivisible as it uh, delivers liberty and justice for all. Indivisible. Unfortunately, one of the distinguishing marks of our present reality is deep division along what Vodibachum calls fault lines. And I believe it's an explicit strategy of the social justice movement to divide up humanity into, into camps that correspond to, to different identity markers. And so you have liberals versus conservatives. You have black versus white, man versus woman, the 99% versus the 1%, cis versus trans, and on and on and on it goes. We're divided. And it's interesting to me that the same people who tell us that thinking in, in binaries, you know, the this or that, these same people that tell us that thinking in binaries is very outdated and oppressive are very, very binary when it comes to how they see the, the world. And this is how they see the world. You're either for me or you're against me. And the move seems to be that you lump people into a category or into a camp in order to dismiss them or cancel them or delete them, if you prefer. I'm calling this our culture's enemy ethic. And it's to view someone that has a different belief as the enemy in order to treat them poorly. 
You, you understand, don't you, that how we view people greatly affects how we treat them? And so if we think that, that they are less than human, well, then that just conveniently frees us from the responsibility of treating them humanely. It allows, for example, for us to impede their, their travel when they're in their vehicles. We can, we can stop them with our sign and our protest, ruin their day. It allows, it allows the looting of stores and the destruction of their property. An enemy ethic is perhaps behind the, the strategy to shoot first and ask questions later. You see, because it works both ways. An enemy ethic is what would prompt you to dismiss certain people as you know, mentally ill, blue-haired Marxists and then have absolutely nothing to do with them. Treat them with contempt. Ignore them. But what is the enemy ethic that the Lord God requires in his law? Look at verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. There's those oxen and donkeys. Again, we seems like we've talked a lot about them lately. Um, but mostly we've talked about your neighbor's animals. Now the Lord wants us to think about what we ought to do if we encounter our enemy's ox or donkey outside of the fence, you know, kind of wandering down the road. We're not to you know, laugh and rub our hands together with glee and say, ha, he's finally getting what he deserves. Or perhaps you see your enemy's donkey lying down at the side of the road, too weak to, to even stand because that jerk of an owner overloaded him. Do you, do you walk away just kind of shaking your head, thinking about this guy who hates you and and how a, how a dead donkey is really going to serve him right. You know, you're kind of chuckling to yourself about Lex Talionis and how a, a dead donkey is, you know, just chef's kiss, perfect punishment for someone who is such an... Well, you get the, you get the uh, idea... What does the law of God require you to do? You're to rescue that beast from that heavy load. You're to stoop down and unstrap him and lead him gently back to his owner, the guy who hates you. What do you do when you see your enemy lying down by the side of the road, robbed and beaten? The Samaritan shows us what kind of neighbor we ought to be, even to those who hate us. But here's the prime example 
of the kind of enemy ethic that we're called to pursue. Here it is from Romans chapter 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. There, there's, friends, there's no greater act of kindness that could ever be done to an enemy than what we ourselves have experienced by God through Christ in the gospel. You understand that, right? He, he has unstrapped us from our heavy load. He has rescued us, and we have been, by his grace, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And so we sing, once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. And now Jesus shows us what our grateful response ought to look like. He says this, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so you shall be sons of your father in heaven. It, it just so happens that our enemy ethics really makes a glorious sort of proclamation about the truths of who God is. It, it, it shows a, a watching world something, a, a glimpse at least, of, of his glorious gospel. And, and friends, I hope you'll agree at least with this, that our culture desperately needs to hear and embrace this glorious gospel. We're, we're called now to, to live in a Christ-like way, not to own the libs, but so that all may come to know and love and embrace the Savior. Friends, we, we live in troubled times. The, the social justice movement has infiltrated every institution through slander spread, through a mob mentality, by showing partiality to the poor and the powerless, by its destructive enemy ethics. This, this is the time. It's for such a time as, as this that the Lord in his providence has called us to live and to display the gospel. Let us then shine forth the light of the gospel as we lead lives that pursue biblical justice and righteousness and truth mixed with all kinds of grace and joy and peace. And all of this for the glory of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen.